When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are seeing considerable amounts of viral contaminants in natural and governmental water sources along the southern border of our country. You ready for this? Bugs, man. Eat bugs. You do not want to find yourself in a survival or disaster-related event and then, at the offset of it, find yourself dehydrated. And where is this backpack of food? It is on your backside. Whatever that might be. When I say long-term, I'm not talking about aliens have come and bombed us. I'm talking about... We've had a considerable serious earthquake, and it's going to take the National Guard, you know, weeks to get to us. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Survival Show podcast with me, Craig, and David, and producer Ben in the background, where it's our job to take you step-by-step through the mindset, skills, tactics, and gear you need to survive almost any crisis, emergency, or disaster, and perhaps more importantly, show you how to use the lessons you learned today to thrive in your life tomorrow. So, guys, what is going on with you all today? I'm doing fantastic, man. I am really psyched for this because I think what we're going to talk about today, which is a continuation of last time, is absolutely vitally important for these guys. How about you, man? Doing real well. I was surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, that we didn't get through everything the last time, but I just want to emphasize that it was really important that we break it off so that we can digest all this information. There's a lot of information in, in just the fundamentals of survival, and, I, and I'm glad we took the time to break it down here. Yeah. Producer Ben, are you awake over there? I'm awake. <laughs> How are you doing today, man? I'm doing fantastic. Fantastic. Is this our new word? David, how about you tell us, everybody, what's going on? All right, man, I can do that. Our mission here, guys, is to progressively increase your survival IQ so you leave out of here fantastically and better prepared at the end of the show than you were at the beginning. So what we're going to cover today, guys, is we're going to cover the rest of priorities of survival. And the way we kind of clock through that is talking about the rule of three. And then after that, we're going to do our thumbs up thumbs down segment and Craig has promised me that he has come up with something that we are not both going to agree on so we'll see how good he does and then Ben is producer Ben is going to dip into the mailbag yeah let's do this Uh, what I want to do guys for everybody listening is I'm going to break down what we discussed last time because the continuity of what we're discussing is really important so again David alluded to we're discussing the law of threes in our part one of this uh, two-part segment we discussed the the first three vital things that you have to have three seconds three minutes and three hours three seconds for decision making three minutes for personal safety and three hours for maintaining your core body temperature what we're going to be discussing today is three days three weeks and three months which is going to be water food and human assistance so we're going to break each one of those down just like we did in part one but that gives us an overview of where we're going or what we've done and where we're going one note here if you guys didn't hear the last podcast you're not going to be lost in this one at all but i do want to encourage you to go go ahead over to patreon.com forward slash the survival show and grab up the notes from last time like i've said before craig and i i think we both go ahead and print these notes off and put them in our binder and we use them for a reference for our own personal means and to uh, build a guide you guys can do that and i just want to let you know also that at the same time that we publish this podcast, we publish the notes. So if you're listening now, you want to kind of track along with the notes from last time and the notes from this time, you can go over there right now and grab those notes. So Craig, I'm ready to get into this. How about you? Let's go with it, my friend. Okay, Craig, thanks for that really concise uh, kind of rewind of what we covered last time. So. Right now, we are at three days and water, and this goes with dehydration and all of that. The average human adult needs two to four liters. That'd be about a gallon. 
we're going to say a gallon of water a day, and this is going to cover hygiene needs and your basic hydration needs, basically for moderate activity. And water is really important. We don't think about all the things that water does for our bodies, but it's important for digestion, circulation, cleansing, temperature regulation, and cell health. Water is not glamorous like fire. And honestly, just because we see the yawns when we do live survival trainings, Craig, we really don't spend a whole lot of time on water, but then we spend like a day and a half on fire. You want to just maybe talk to that a little bit? Fire is is cool. It's sexy, whatever. And <laughs> and uh, people like to play with fire, and we give them a right to do that in a class, and and that's good. But the hydration is is vitally vitally important the majority of americans walk around dehydrated all the time mm-hmm. anyway right. i mean there's a lot of estimates but like between 70 and 80 percent of the people listening to this podcast are dehydrated right now and if uh i had a discussion with my dad last week and it, it my dad's you know i grew up country rural here in kentucky and sweet tea was you know what was put in our baby bottles and all that kind of stuff and um said something to my dad my dad's got some really tight muscles and and I said dad how much water do you drink and he's like I don't drink water (laughs) (laughs) why would I drink water I drink tea and I I don't know what else he drinks but but um (laughs) but he's got a a lot of significant health issues simply because he's not drinking water and I did not understand the importance of it myself I, I did martial arts for years and and I ended up medically retiring myself over some issues and a lot of my issues or simply that I was dehydrated. I was getting up every morning and having an extreme amount of difficulty walking up and down the steps mm. of my house. And I thought, man, I have completely wrecked my body. I'm not going to be able to walk when I'm, you know, 55, 60 years old. Mm-hmm. And I just, for- I don't like drinking water. I forced myself to start drinking enough water. And when I did, I discovered I wasn't injured. I was dehydrated and had been dehydrated for 20 years, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. it was, it's ridiculous. And so um, I'm just, I'm saying that as an encouragement to you that are listening. If that gallon of water sounds like too much, it, it is if you if you don't drink water. But at least do everything you can to drink half a gallon of water a day. Start off there. And mm-hmm. I, if you don't already do that, I can promise you, you're going to feel better. Part of uh, what goes along with survival training, and I'm sure Dave will get into some of this, but to go back on heat management and maintain your core body temp and all the stuff that goes along with it. Your body can function properly uh, thermoregulating itself if it is well hydrated. If it is not well hydrated, it cannot function properly. So if you're drinking water and staying hydrated the way you're supposed to, it will actually warm your body up and help you to stay warmer. Because if not, Mm -hmm. your body has to work harder, which means it burns more energy. Mm -hmm. You're not staying as warm. And so basically it's, it's a domino effect just simply because you're not drinking enough water. You're, you're, you're burning more calories than you need to. And it's, you're working so hard to stay warm and you're not because you're not hydrated properly. So water might not be the sexiest topic and the coolest topic to talk about and have fun with, but it is one of the most important things that we can do. Absolutely. I think Craig, before we get into this topic much further, I'd like to talk about some ways to know if you are hydrated, and then let's go ahead and segue into some first signs of dehydration so people can know right now if you're hydrated or not. Okay, just if you're hydrated, you're going to be using the bathroom probably about once an hour. Not everybody has the opportunity to do that, and that, I think, is part of the reason why a lot of people don't drink enough water because it sends them to the bathroom a lot. And when you go to the bathroom, uh, your, your urine should be virtually clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these are big signs that you're well hydrated. Uh, you can grab the back of the the skin on the back of your hand, and and if you pull it up, it it, it goes back. It's very pliable. Your skin is very pliable, and so these are all indicators that uh, you're healthy. And again, I, I want to emphasize. And I don't want to harp on it too much because I don't want to be a broken record. But I did not know I was dehydrated until I finally got hydrated, and now um, what I discovered because I started studying this subject is that most people have some sort of some portion of their body, some muscular portion of their body that when they start getting dehydrated, it starts to cramp ever so slightly. A lot of people mm-hmm. feel that in their abdomen. I don't. I f- actually I feel it in my right heel and my right calf. And I I 
I didn't know that until I started getting hydrated finally after, you know, most of my life. And now and it went away. <laughs> yeah. And when it went away, that's exactly what happened is that uh, once I got hydrated now, uh, when I get dehydrated, which happens daily, if I don't take in water like I'm supposed to, mm-hmm. that right calf will start to cramp. And that's my indicator now. I thought it was an old judo injury. It wasn't a judo injury. It was dehydration. And so now, and when I start feeling that, instead of walking around in pain thing and you doofus, you did judo too long, uh, go get some water and drink it. And literally within 30 minutes, I'm feeling much better and not having the problem that I did before. That's really good, Craig. So a couple of ways to know if you are dehydrated and Craig kind of dipped into this are cramps. Some people get muscle cramps and I'll tell you, whenever I do a survival training or I'm out camping for an extended period, even when I travel sometimes, especially if I'm flying long distances, what I notice is I will, I will literally wake up and my, my left leg will be cramping. Really? So you feel it in one leg only too? I feel it in one leg. Yep. That's your indicator. Interesting. Yeah. So one leg for me also, but it specifically Hmm. happens. Now, of course, for all of us, your first sign of beginning to be dehydrated is going to be thirst, right? And another one that's really, really common, and I would call this a, a tier two indicator, would be headaches. So often when people get headaches, the first thing I'll ask, you know, how's your water intake? Have you been drinking enough water? Yeah, let me throw one because it's going to go right along with this stuff as well. What you're discussing is that uh, another thing that I noticed about myself, um, and again, I, I keep sharing where I, I messed up, is that a lot of times a uh, feeling of hunger is an indicator that you're dehydrated, not that you're actually hungry and need food. Uh, and I, if I looked at your notes properly, I think you're going to dig into that a little bit later when we discuss food, but we don't need as much food as we think we need. And this, this hunger feeling, um, can be satiated more often than not with just drinking a, a glass of water. And because it is, it is your body saying, Hey, I need water. And it feels like a hunger pain when it's actually a dehydration pain rather than a hunger pain. And I wish I had, man, I read this several years ago. I wish I had a link. There was a really good study done on people feeling hunger pains and whether that was fixed with water or food. And it was an extensive, really detailed study. And it was, it was uh, a large percentage. I don't even want to guess what it was because I don't remember, but a large percentage just of people just needed water. If you're severely dehydrated, it could take a, a few hours, even up to a half day, maybe even a full day. But there is one trick to help your body become hydrated a lot quicker and it's adding some electrolytes to your water. Now I'm not going to get into the science of this because honestly I don't know it that well, but adding some plant-based carbohydrates to your water helps. My understanding is that it helps your cells uh, absorb the water better. And that's, that's where the water actually gets into your system. And what that actually, what happens in myself is I actually go to the bathroom a lot less and I feel better quicker. And one of the easiest ways to do it is to go to your store and buy the concentrated lemon juice. It's really not that expensive. And I just put maybe a half ounce in a liter of water. And I'll tell you what, that'll get you hydrated a lot quicker. Sometimes I add just a a little bit of honey and you can really use just about any fruit juice to do that. So those are electrolytes you can add to your water. And when you're out in nature, you can do that too. If you come across some fruits some blueberries, you can squeeze that material into your water too. Craig, do you have anything to add to that? This is why this subject, we did, I don't think we were real clear on this, David, but you do not want to find yourself in a survival or disaster related event. And then at the offset of it, find yourself dehydrated. Mm-hmm. And this is a vital survival topic. We covered this pretty extensively again in podcast number one, preparations preparation and crisis prevention. And it's on our list in the guide that's coming out in January. And it's right up there with tell someone where you're going, check the weather before you go, know your skills, take a paper map, and then drink lots of water. This is practical stuff. It's not as glamorous as fire. And it's not as cool as building a a survival shelter. But 
This is vital. Yeah, I mean, we haven't, we, I think we've proven, or at least I hope we've proven to everybody that we need water and that we need to be doing it every day. But what do we do if we find ourselves in the midst of survival, disaster, and we've got to find it in our mm-hmm. environment? So I want to take a few minutes to discuss that. And hey, and please, David, any point, just jump in here because I've got several points I want to cover here. Um, as far as disaster readiness, here's some things to keep in mind at your, at your house. You know that disaster's coming fill up your bathtubs, go ahead and plug them up, fill them up. That way you've got big storage containers of clean, purified water in case something happens and you can't utilize the water source that's coming into your house. And let me just throw something in here, Craig. The average bathtub is going to be somewhere between 80 and 125 gallons. So how much do we need per day per person? Yeah, a gallon a day for hygiene. Then that includes hygiene too. So yeah, you've got, you've got a month for four people out of one bathtub. Mm-hmm. Right. If we got 120 gallons, that's I mean, right. we're, we're that's taking right. care of ourselves. So secondly, you have a hot water heater in your house or most people do. And that has a cons- uh, significant amount of gallons of water. And actually, I don't know how many of that is. Do you have a guess on that? I don't know how much that is. I think it, I think it varies depending on the house. Some houses have yeah, those okay. those instant water heater things right. where they just do the transfer right there. But I think I believe the average water heater would be somewhere between 20 and, and maybe 50 gallons. Uh, the last one would be the back of your toilets. Yeah, hygiene is important. If you're using the bathroom, flush it, get it out of the house. But if if that is your only source for water, then I would I would use the bathroom outside <laughs> and get the water from the back of my toilet because that's clean water. That's not mm-hmm. in contact at all with any human urine or feces, and so that's going to be clean water. It's not a problem for you to drink that water. Um, outside of that, we've got to figure out how to gather water from our environment. Uh, I'm a big fan of just telling everybody you can gather any water that falls from the sky. So if, if it is raining, uh, figure out some sort of container to gather it, uh, set up some sort of container at the base of a, of a, um, tarp. If you're in a wilderness situation, uh, gather the water that's coming out of your downspout of your house. If Mm -hmm. you're in your home and another one that gets tossed around a lot is snow. Uh, you can't eat snow in a survival situation. Well, that's that's not true. I mean, you can. You just got to do it intelligently. Uh, you want to do everything you can to melt it because it will decrease your body temp. So what I recommend people do is get themselves a water bottle. And if they don't have a fire, then they can just stick it inside their jacket and let their body heat. Remember, your body is a heater from part one. Let your body heat warm that water bottle up and turn that snow into water. Mm-hmm. And that way you have drinkable water. Just be advised that if you take a water bottle and cram it full of snow, you're probably going to have an inch or two of of actual water in that bottle. And last but not least, as far as gathering material from the uh, sky is dew. Walk outside in the mornings when the dew's on. Uh, I usually tell folks to just tie a bandana to your foot and walk around and drag it and soak it up. And then you can wring that into your mouth or you can run that through a filter or whatever you feel like you need to do. Mm-hmm. And th- that's three ways you can get water from the sky. Um, that's, that's vitally important. So Craig, you want to just talk us through some ground-based sources of water, because I know some of them are better than others. Yeah. Um, any water that is flowing on the earth has an opportunity for contaminants to be in it, whether it's bacterial or viral or even chemical. I mean, bacterial, chemical, viral, Mm -hmm. uh, these are all concerns that you need to be aware of. So anytime you have an opportunity to go to the source of a waterway, Meaning if it's a creek and you know that it starts at a spring that comes out of the side of the hill, go to that spring where it's coming out of the side of the hill. Uh, That doesn't mean that water that is underground can never have contaminants. Sometimes it does. However, we know for a fact that the more water flows on the top of the earth, the more opportunities there are for bacterial contaminants, which comes primarily from feces, uh, has to get in that water source. So go to the source as much as you can. Yeah, animal feces, even human feces. I mean, you never know when you're downstream from uh, any number of things. The other part of this is you never want to, if you're going to choose water, choose water that's moving, uh, if at all possible. So going to a puddle and gathering water from sitting water, there's a really good chance that there's going to be more contaminants there than there is if it's moving. If that's your only choice, then you're going to utilize some sort of decontamination device 
uh, whether it's a filter or purifier. We'll discuss that in a minute. But you want to do what you can to find moving water whenever possible. That's for sure. That's perfect. I, I've really got nothing else to say on that. You covered it really well. Let's uh, let's discuss these filters and purifiers because I know you're the gear geek too. There's a big difference between a filter and a purifier, you all. So make sure that uh, at this point, I, I am recommending people go ahead and get a purifier. For years, I've been recommending the Sawyer Mini Filter. And that can, the, uh, a Sawyer Mini takes care of your needs almost all the time in our country. However, um, and I'm not getting political at all, but due to the influx of immigrants on our southern border, we are seeing considerable amounts of viral contaminants in natural and governmental water sources along the southern border of our country. I know this because I've trained agents that work that border. They have measured this, they have recorded this, and it's becoming a, a very serious problem. And uh, so I, I am a fan of getting a... didn't know that. Yeah, it, it came up this year in training. And so, I mean, it was something that, that I can't say what organization I work with. That organization sent that information to me and said, hey, you need to help us find a, a solution for this. The solution, the simple solution is, and there's others, and David's got one, and I never can remember that name, David, but a, a, a small device that works as a purifier is Rapid Pure. Mm-hmm. It works just like the Sawyer Mini. It's slightly more expensive. It doesn't do as many because a Sawyer Mini, for example, does 100,000 gallons of water. The Rapid Pure does something like 7,000 gallons of water. Uh, but it is a purifier, which means it will assist you in cleaning water that has viral contaminants in it. And so I don't know if this is like this throughout the country. But here in our state, one thing that uh, we're running into is a lot of a lot of restaurants are running into hepatitis A problems. And again, I'm not trying to get political, but but there's some reasonings for that, uh, uh, and it, and most of that is originating from an immigrant population. It's a problem, and so uh, we know this, and and it's one of the reasons that some of that the debate is going back and forth, and, and there's some legitimate concern about how do how do we help people that are bringing a lot of diseases into our country. Uh, and, and we've got to come up with solutions for that. That's for sure. But uh, a rapid pure is a good one. And, and tell me again, David, what's the one that you have that's a pump? Yeah, so the one that I have pumps between, and there's a lot of differences. For instance, the Sawyer Mini that Craig's talking about is you actually either have to uh, draw the water through the filter by sucking on it, or you screw it on a bag or a water bottle and squeeze the water through. That is more of a personal filtration system. But if you have, if you want a larger volume of water for more people or, you know, to take care of your needs very quickly, there are pump filters. And what Craig's talking about, the one that I recommend is, has been out for years and years and years. It's used internationally, mission organizations and and people that travel to areas where, Water is a really, really big problem. Uh, a lot of them use what's called the first need filtration system. There's various levels, but there's a, there's a, I'm going to say it's sub $100. It's somewhere between $60 and $80 for the pump unit and the canister. Now, the canister is good for, I believe, 100 to 150 gallons and then you basically test the, you can test the can, canister. There's a really easy way to know if it's working. And then you just toss it out, replace the canister. The pump unit, you know, just stays. You just replace the canister. And that's fantastic. I mean, the water that comes out of that from almost any source just tastes really good. And the difference between a filter and a purifier is that a filter will take out your cryptosporidium, your giardia, and, but it doesn't take out viruses because a filter, they can only make a substance small enough to filter out those other biologicals, but viruses pass through. But a purifier, by definition, can take out the virus. And it usually is because it has some sort of chemical or ionization process that does that. That's the big difference between your filter and your purifier. You've got to have something else besides just something that is uh, has a bunch of holes in it, basically, which is what a filter is. That's right. More than anything. Yep, that's right. And the first need filtration system does that. It has ceramics. It has some other technology in there. It has uh, charcoal. So the other threat that, we, that you alluded to, Craig, that a lot of these purifiers don't deal with, although the first need deals with this 
on a small level, but they really can't quantify it because there's so many threats in this other category, which is chemical pollutants and contaminants. That's where it comes down to being wise as far as what you're using as a source. Regardless of whether you have a purifier or a filter, a lot of chemical contaminants are just not going to be able to be purified out. So Craig, can we run down through a couple of more points and then do a wrap on water because we are We've got two other big topics to cover. (laughs) All right. Gather water from the sky when you can. If you have tools, boil it. If you don't have tools, use a purifier. Don't drink salt water. Oh, yeah, Mm -mm. man. Don't drink salt water. No, not at all. So you want to dig into food, sir? Okay, that sounds good, man. And food's kind of, it's, it's the one thing that I think when people think of a survival situation or a disaster or preparedness, even a bug out bag, I'm going to tell you, I don't know if this is your experience, but the first thing people are thinking and talking about is I got to have food. I got to have bins of rice or granola bars or, you know, storehouses of peanut butter. Is that your experience, Craig? Without a doubt. Here in Kentucky, I mean, and you guys up in Pennsylvania laugh, but we, we get an inch of snow and people are freaking out down here that the world is going to come to an end. <laughs> and I mean, they will clear the grocery stores out. And for the life of me, I, I'll never understand why bread and milk, I mean, it's so cliche, but it's so true. People will go and get bread and milk as if their life is going to end if they don't have it two days from now. It's it's just a misunderstanding. I mean, they, they would be better served to, and me and you and Ben talked about this a couple of weeks ago, making sure they have a backup heat source than they would getting food. So, I mean, it's 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 sad. I mean, I'm getting fired up on a, <laughs> I am getting fired up. It drives me crazy. <laughs> Basically, what we're falling victim to is we don't have the ability to control our own mindset. I think that's incredibly sad. That's why we deal with a lot of the problems we do in our current society is that we don't control our own selves, which if we can't do that, it drives me crazy. But you don't have to have food every day. You've got to have heat. So when these events occur, you know, you don't have to necessarily worry about the heat. But, I mean, you don't have to necessarily worry about the food. But um, we can talk about some food storage so you don't have to concern yourself with it at all. When something happens, you've got the storage and you're ready to rock. So the law of threes works like this, guys and gals. You can't live more than... Uh, three seconds without being able to make uh, solid decision making. You can't live more than three minutes without maintaining your uh, blood flow and oxygen flow in your body. You can't live more than three hours without maintaining your core body temperature. That's shelter and fire. You can't live more than three days without water. And you can't live more than three weeks without food, which brings us right back to David. Three weeks. How many of you guys out there listening can imagine going three weeks without food? Crickets, man. I'm hearing crickets. <laughs> but but it's often the first thing that we think. I mean, it, it gets in our head. Like it it is it is important. And I think you brought this up at our last training that it gets in people's heads. So you were actually rethinking this whole thing because uh, and I, I think you nailed it perfectly because of mindset. But here we are at three weeks out, and as far as real needs go. Almost one of the last things that you need is food, but we want to think about it first. And why is that? Okay, so most of us have a food backpack on our bodies. We're designed this way. Historic cultures, and Craig, you have a very good historical perspective and maybe kick in on this, but historical cultures often did not eat three square meals a day. They were hunter-gatherers, they were nomads, and they feasted when they had food, and they made do when they didn't. Do you have anything else to throw in there? No, that, that that's pr- that's pretty simple. I thought you were going. You said you you said I might have something to add in. I thought you were going to talk about my backpack. <laughs> no, no, that's my punchline. Okay, you all. So you have a backpack <laughs> of food reserved. You are designed that way. And where is this backpack of food? It is on your back side. <laughs> it is your behind. It's the fat that we carry, right? Like you're not going to starve if you go a day without right. food. Now, exactly. I just want to, you know, we have to do this because the lawyers make us. <laughs> if you have medical conditions, you have, you know, glycemic issues or, or anything like that, you just want to be really, really careful. I'm not saying you should go a couple of days without food. What I am saying is that for most of us, if we had to, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be mission critical. There's a lot of other things we need to consider before food gets in our head and becomes our first priority. Would you agree with that, Craig? Absolutely. Uh, and, and the way to do that is to practice. Uh, go do some uh, incremental fasting from time to time. Okay, man. So let's, let's jump into food here. And uh, do you want to take this just 
maybe start with some bullet points here as far as maybe food storage and some sort of things like that. But yeah, the the first thing I would recommend is food storage. And what I mean by that is you've got to have a, a good basis and, and, and a good nutritionist or, or uh, exercise physiologist that understand nutrition very well. Uh, just find a buddy or pay somebody to help you understand nutrition. Do your own research. Pick up some books. There's you know, this cool thing called Google where you can uh, type words in and it comes back with information to help you understand how to handle all this. Because you'll need a good cross-section of what meets you and your family's needs you know so if is some like my family has some very particular health needs and so we need to to maintain that for my family so what works for me would not work for you so you need to do specific research but you you need a broad base uh, of nutrition that is going to include some carbohydrate as well as some meat protein or some very or, or plant protein some sort of protein as well so make sure you understand how to get some food storage um, as far as urban scavenging or foraging is concerned, um, we always recommend, uh, not in your, in your biggest cities, this is going to be a little bit hard to find, but in, even in suburban areas, you're going to be able to find dandelion plantain and, and your clovers, for example, all grass, uh, is edible. Uh, just avoid that. That's been treated with some sort of, um, any kind of herbicide. Yeah, or, herbicide. Or yeah, that's like what that. I was looking for. Sorry, I went, I went silly there for a second. Because you have a lot of that. There's a lot of that in, in suburban areas right. and cities. Yep. Uh, the next big one is to... Can I just can I just go back to that for a second, Craig? So one thing I want to add to what you said is you said grass, and you just went over that really quick. A lot of people don't understand or know this, but there's a lot of nutrients that you can get out of grass, and but it's not fully digestible by humans. So do you want to talk to people about how they can, they can eat in quotation marks grass because it's everywhere. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people probably noticed their dog eating grass and, and what that dog is doing is it's forcing itself to, to either uh, vomit or send out the other end something in their body that doesn't seem like it's going too well. And so um, same thing is going to happen to you and me if we eat an excessive amount of grass because it has a lot of fiber in it. So if you actually chew up the grass fibers and swallow it, then you're going to have the situation that arises when you take in a lot of fiber, which we all understand what that means. So the way I recommend people in a survival situation is eat your grass, chew it, uh, swallow the juice that comes off of it, and then spit the material out. What you're doing there is you're going to get as much nutrition as you can out of it. And at the same time, you're not taking in as much fiber. And so you're not as likely to get diarrhea or some variation of it. So I got one here. You ready for this? Yeah, go. Bugs, man. Eat bugs. Now that grosses a lot of people out. But actually at our trainings, we, we've done that. We've shown people how to eat bugs. And beetles. I mean, beetles, grasshoppers, cockroaches. People are going to be grossed out. <laughs> cockroaches. Bees, wasps, ants, maggots, and mealworms, and just regular worms, termites, and grubs. I mean, they are very readily, very, very readily accessible. And the thing that I tell people, because we have a lot of bear around here, and bear hibernate in the wintertime. It doesn't mean they sleep constantly through the entire winter, but they go into a, a much more low-calorie dormant state. But they need fat because there's not a whole lot available in the wintertime to eat. I say this all the time to people. How do bears get fat? Are they getting fat on on the the raspberries and blueberries they can find? I don't think so. Uh, something, something that people don't understand is that a lot of bugs have almost the perfect balance of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. So, Craig, do you have anything else to say about bugs? Eat bugs, man. I'm a big fan of bugs. Um, it's, you know, we're the only country in the world that doesn't eat some sort of, uh, significant amount of insects basically for our dietary needs. And, uh, I made a video, man, it's probably been four years ago for our YouTube channel. Uh, I can't remember what the title was. I thought it'd be one that would go viral and I, and I actually made it for that purpose. <laughs> I was trying to make one go viral, <laughs> but it was some like clickbait. survival. Yeah. Clickbait survival instructor eats maggots. And so I did a bunch and I ate a bunch of maggots on camera and, um, but I did a lot of research. I actually went and spoke to an entomologist at the university of Kentucky before I did it. And one of the things that came out of that, which was fascinating to me is particularly with maggots, if they're feeding on something, they're basically going to become that something. 
in essence, even at the cellular level. And so what I did is I found a bunch of maggots that were on pawpaws, which, uh, do y'all have pawpaws up there? Uh uh-uh. Okay. So pawpaw is like a, it's like a lot of people call it the Appalachian banana. It's a fruit that grows in, in this part of the world down here in uh, Indiana, lower Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, West Virginia, what have you, but, but, uh, Virginia, but, uh, I found a bunch of pawpaws that had maggots on them. So, uh, you know, I did the research on them and basically what I was told by the entomologist and my research was when you eat those maggots, they're going to taste like pawpaws. And by golly, they did. They tasted mm-hmm. like pawpaws because even at the cellular level, basically that maggot is eating that material and it takes that into its digestive system, which is very different from ours. Okay. And instead of it secreting a tremendous amount of waste, like we do, it basically takes that material and puts it into its own body at the cellular level. And so Hmm. if a maggot is feeding on a dead animal, for example, then you're going to be eating dead critter and that's not cool. But if you're getting maggots off of pawpaws or bananas, I mean, those maggots are going to taste like bananas. Uh, I still washed them. I still cooked them. (laughs) I'm thinking there's some people that are listening that are not convinced, Craig. (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) That's all right. I'm okay with that. They they just need to try it. Try it and write me on Patreon. Hey, I tell you what. Write me on Patreon and tell me what your experience is. I'll, I'll I don't know. I'll send you a t-shirt or something. <laughs> First one that yeah, does so that, I'll send you a t-shirt or something. So when I was in the uh, jungle, I think it was two years ago, and I've got a whole documentary series on my experience there in the jungle. There was one episode that we had. I'm Craig. I'm gonna say that they were like four or five inch long grubs and it was yeah. orange <laughs> and did you cook them now we no we ate those raw and we ate a lot of things raw but i will tell you we, here's what we got to talk about with with all these bugs and even plant material we highly recommend that you roast fry or boil these Absolutely. things i should have yeah. said that about the, my maggots if i didn't make that clear i cooked those maggots before i <laughs> And the, the interesting thing is maggots and grubs, when you cook them, you put a little, if you got butter, <laughs> oh man, they are actually really, You know really what maggots good. with butter taste like? I, I do, yes. But go ahead and tell everybody else. Maggots with butter <laughs> taste like maggots with butter on them. They're fantastic. Oh, really? I think they taste like, <laughs> I think they taste closer to like shrimp. <laughs> oh, hush. <laughs> you and your shrimp sauce shrimp sauce on maggots that's disgusting all right let's go down through this list and hit a couple of other things that people can uh if they've got to forage or look for food where could they get some food in urban or wilderness situations yeah uh, a good choice is to dumpster dive um uh, i was in a course are you serious at, yeah dude that's gross, I, I was in a class where i was teaching i think it was tracking and there was a bunch it was like a preparedness um get together and there was a guy that was teaching dumpster diving. He had been homeless for a couple of years and, and, uh, he talked about how he could find food in any environment mm-hmm. and, and how he, how he dumpster dived. But he was real clear. He did, you know, if it was laying against the side of the dumpster, he didn't take it. But if it was down in a bag or something, he would take it. He would do what he could to, to cook it again. Uh, so that the, if there was any bacteria on the outside of it, he could cook the bacteria off of it. And so it can, it can all be done. I mean, um, and it's not that, it's not that disgusting really. Uh, it seems like it is, but I mean, here, here's the thing I always tell people in survival. Hunger is the best seasoning in the world. I'm just telling you, Mm -hmm. if you're hungry and I'm not talking about survival training, most of us are sitting here listening and thinking about survival training. I think me and you talk about that a lot. And, uh, but in true survival, if you're hungry, you're going to be all about that dumpster, baby. You're going to be all about it um, because there's a good chance there's food there. So um, the last one I think we need to focus our attention on is basically a wilderness situation. Uh, fishing is always a good option in a wilderness situation if you have sources of, of bodies of water, as well as just keep in mind if you're going to hunt or trap or something of that nature – don't think that you're going to take a survival class or read a book or watch a video and then be, you know, um, Jeremiah Johnson or something of that nature. You're not, you're going to, you're going to need to practice those skills long before you have them and can utilize them to your advantage. I want to just, I I just want to take a detour back to the dumpster diving and everything else that we've said and just talk about food preparation. So 
the bottom line is boiling is really, really the best way to do it. But if you're going to roast or cook something, it needs to get to about 160 or 170 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's a little bit higher than a lot of people say. So you're going to, this is going to be well done stuff, right? And that's going to kill the bacteria that, that would be, would possibly be in bugs or, or dumpster food. But I just want to say that the boiling is the best way to do that. You're not going to have a thermometer likely if you're in this situation. So just know that there's a little bit of risk, but cook and fry and roast things well done or come to a full boil for, you know, a couple of minutes. Yeah. I remember, I don't, I mean, I think I've made it clear to everybody. I don't watch a lot of survival TV because it drives me crazy, but, (laughs) but uh, I remember watching Les Stroud years ago. I did watch, I think I've watched all of Les Stroud's videos or at least the first show he did. And, we got to get uh, less on here, by the way. Please do. But one of the things that he did is he was he was uh, stranded, you know, the way they set it up, like an arid environment. I can't even remember where it was, but but he had a, a, a small little shelter that he had caught some rodent. And I can't remember if it was like a, a chipmunk. I don't even know what it was because I'm not familiar with that part of the world. But, you know, he discussed it being a rodent, that there was a good chance for bacterial contaminants to be on the animal before he ate it. So he cleaned it as best he could. And then he... He super crispy fried this thing, man. I mean, not fried it, but roasted it. I mean, this thing was black, black. And and, and I thought it was a really good visual to teach exactly what you're saying, because you're looking at this, what could have been a nice little piece of meat, but it turned out to be, you know, looks like a piece of charcoal. He did get some sustenance out of it, and he ensured that he wasn't uh, ingesting something that was going to be making him sick. He, he did a real good job of making that a, a seriously good visual for everybody to learn from. So we're going to talk about food a lot and all these other topics in future podcasts. And we're probably going to talk about this stuff in our video podcasts too, our Tuesday and Thursday things. But Craig, can you just step us back really quickly through what we've already covered in the rule of threes and step us into our last rule of three? All right, guys. So here's how this goes. The rule of threes is there to help us know what our, our needs are, not our wants, our needs. You got to have good decision-making in three seconds. You've got to take care of your personal uh, safety, which is your blood flow and oxygen flow in, within three minutes or you're going to die. You need to take care of your core body temperature within the first three hours. You got to take care of your hydration needs in the first three days or you're going to die. And you need to take care of your energy, your food sources and needs in the first three weeks or you're going to die. And again, just to emphasize, this is a very general understanding. There are times when certain ones would need to come forward or first before the others. But in essence, if you did nothing else but just sit, for the most part, are going to be your needs in order. And so the last that we're going to get into now is human assistance. So why is that important? What are you even talking about, man? So here's here's why I bring this up to everybody is that native, I always like to go back to how native people, primitive aboriginal folks lived. And what can we gather? And this is another reason that that show with Matt Graham, man, there was a lot of nuggets that he shared on there that was fantastic. So go back and listen to, to Matt's show. Um, but one of the things that we can glean from them was just an overall sense of how did they live? What kind of things did they do in a general sense that could help us today? And one of the things that those cultures did is they worked together. They were very good at working together in modern culture, modern society. We're, we're all segmented into our own little homes. Uh, we rarely, even if we live in a neighborhood, we rarely even speak to our neighbors or see them or know anything about them. And we don't, we definitely don't work with them. We definitely don't share food and water with them. Uh, we rarely even see them. And so, um, in a long, longer term event, whatever that might be, when I say long term, I'm not talking about aliens have come and bombed us. I'm talking about we've had a considerable serious earthquake and it's going to take the National Guard, you know, weeks to get to us. Then you're going to need that human assistance going out to a month, two months to be able to function. And at the very least, you need to be aware of them to protect what it is that you want to protect and share what you want to share. And so uh, if you think that just because you can remain an island in a civilized society with, with the rule of law and think it's going to be the same way without the rule of law in an uncivilized society, you are wrong. Um, anytime, I mean, we've seen this even in recent uh, just political um problems where people have tried to put forth a political message and they decided to destroy homes and businesses um, 
you know, that's a really dangerous position to be in. Can you imagine if we actually, those people could not go home that night with electricity and water and all that stuff, how much even more stressed they would be. So those are all indicators of what, how animalistic a group of people can become. So you need to be prepared to work with others and at least be able to defend what, what you want to defend and share what you want to share. Now, one other aspect of this, this three months part, Craig, that we've discussed before, and I'd like, like to know what your current feelings are. Uh, a lot of the guys listening, and if you're not, it's, it's probably one of the worthwhile survival shows to go and check out as alone. And there's kind of a phenomenon there where several people drop out and I won't, I'm not going to talk at length about the show, but it seems like people, the longer people are on there, the longer they start to yearn human companionship because the idea of the original show was that they would be alone, right? (laughs) Thus it's called alone. So do you have any things to add as far as our need for human companionship? companionship alone that that helps us to understand this three months thing yes we need it uh it's a proven fact that we need it and uh, even people that seem like they're really isolated they need it as well maybe not as much as others but um, human interaction there's been tremendous amount of study where people's emotional state there's levels in your brain that can be measured when you're happy and when you're not And so it has been proven that when you are with others, you're happier than it is when you're alone, even people that are literally loners. And so I've done 30 days on my own by myself. And I can tell you from experience that 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 is true. Um, And I tend to be a loner uh, in many respects, although it doesn't appear that I am. But uh, I tend to like to spend a lot of time alone and 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 work through things in my mind and stuff of that nature. And and um so the show alone was the first that really put that in the forefront of the survival community at large. And so I think it's been good that people see how uh, there's been people that have inc- struggled incredibly, incredibly bad um, to the point of, you know, anger issues and stuff of that nature. Um, and again, that typically is, is a strong ego, somebody that doesn't know how to control their own ego. And I'm not picking on anybody and specifically we, all of us can run a, run a foul with this sort of thing, but, but you can also see others that are really at peace with themselves being alone. And they know that they live in the moment and they're going to gather what they can from that moment and then look forward to seeing others down the road. It's, if you've watched that show at all, anybody that's watched that show and I haven't watched it for a couple of years, but. But I watched, I think, the, I know I watched the first season and I watched a portion of the second season. Um, when they get to meet back with people, you can tell they're happy. Um, I mean, for the most part, they're, they're pleased. And if they had been hooked up to a monitor, that could have been measured. And so that in and of itself is pretty telling uh, from my perspective. So, Craig, I think this has been a really good and helpful discussion. I think along the way... We've left some really good action steps. One last time, and we actually do this in our survival trainings, don't we? We actually track people through because this is the priorities of survival based on your psychological and physiological needs, isn't it? So can you step us through one more time the rule of threes and all these steps, and then then we'll go into our next segment. All right, you can't live more than three seconds without being able to make sound decisions. You can't live more than three minutes without maintaining your personal safety. That's blood flow and oxygen flow. You can't live more than three hours without maintaining your core body temperature. That's shelter and fire. You can't live more than three days without water. That's finding water from the environment or purifying water. You can't live more than three weeks without food. That's what we just completed discussing. And you can't live more than three months without human assistance or human companionship. Physically, you could probably do it, but your morale would be increased. And when your morale is increased, everything else goes much better when you have others to work with you. Uh, everybody that's ever spent time alone writing, uh, you know, cause, and I say that because a lot of people have spent time alone writing. They eventually get to the point where they really miss the people that they're away from. And it's rare to find somebody, maybe a Dick Pernicki that, you know, he didn't really seem to miss too many people when he went to Alaska and did his thing. Um, but, um, but, uh, all your, guys that have spent time writing or recording at least their thoughts while they spent extended periods of time alone. Um, they wanted that time with, with people. So that's really good, Craig. And you, you actually recommended a resource and we'll put that in the show notes. 
It's uh, One Man's Wilderness. It's Dick Prenicky, and he had some videos that that he shot. This was back in the 60s, dude. And he went into the Alaskan wilderness for an extended period of time. And sometimes he was there for th- three months or more without human companionship. I got the audiobook, and it's a great listen. It's it's really, really interesting and a fantastic read. So anyway, recommend that for people if they're into that sort of thing. What do you say we go into this thumbs up, thumbs down segment where you think that you have something that we're not going to agree on? This is like super simple, okay? But I know because I've seen you, and I, and I think I know how you feel about this, but I might be wrong on this one too. <laughs> what do you think about watches? Do you wear a watch? I'm actually not wearing a watch right now. What do I think about watches? Thumbs up or thumbs down on watches for Thumbs up or survival? thumbs down. I am a thumbs up on watches. Boom, thumbs down. Really? Yeah, I don't care. I don't care about time. Okay. I mean, I estimate sun up and sun down for sure. But as far as is it what time it is, I don't care. Well, that's good for you. <laughs> Let me tell you about watches. <laughs> I did get I, one. I got one that we disagree on. You did. And it's really interesting because if you would have asked me that question probably three years ago, I would have said thumbs down only because I didn't wear watches. Because a lot of us have our cell phones now, right? And they're if you're in a wilderness survival situation, you've got you know, a day or maybe two if you ration your battery there. So we, we kind of always have a watch with us. We can look at our cell phone. But I tend to overextend myself. Just This is just real life, and I'm being real with you right now. I, I tended towards being late for things for years and years and years. And Are you I, saying you're I, not now? <laughs> I, no. Ben, I oh, Ben, are you there, Ben? Can we take I a vote on this? way better. I am way better than I used to be. He's better than he used to oh, be. Oh, okay. Well, cool. Golf class. Dude, you did not you did not know me. <laughs> but here's the here's the upside to that. When you have me, man, you have me 100%. But the next my next appointment, you know, they don't have me yet. But here's the deal. Uh, I like I like dig, uh, analog watches. And there's a way to use those to be able to tell general direction north south. And here, here's Can I what stop happens. You right there? I actually, yeah, go. You don't need a, you don't need an analog watch. You can use a. I know we don't. We could use a compass. <laughs> well, no, I'm saying. I mean, I uh, in my book. This situation. is getting downright. This is getting downright mean, man. <laughs> We're fighting. So, here, you go. here you go. Just, just because I'm just beautiful. I'm just the beautiful Craig Cuddle that I am. In my book, Essential Wilderness Navigation. Essential Wilderness Navigation. It comes out in March, by the way, if you'd like to pick it up. Um, I have a sidebar in that book that teaches people how to tell direction with a can of soup. But they do need to know what time it is. Uh Uh-huh. So you basically draw the clock, if you will, on the bottom of the can of soup, knowing the time. And then you utilize that to find direction. If you want to know how to do that, then pick up my book in March. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you here. (laughs) Okay, so our next thumbs up, thumbs down question is, what do you think of survival hacks? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Oh, man. Okay, let me, let me wrap this up, all right? All right, let's do it. Now, this, this, whole, this whole thing with watches, I actually Oh, you're going to wrap up this bed. segment, which means you're saying no, you actually no, want the man, last word. I, no, I've got to do my last <laughs> rebuttal on watches. <laughs> hey, everybody listening, this is David's way of saying, hey, I'm going to finish this up and you don't get to talk again. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. I, so I, I remember. I am oh, so committed is- to watches that I actually wear one to bed now. And the reason I do that is because it helps me get up earlier. <laughs> I, I actually check the time and when it gets close to the time. Uh, anyway. So we disagree on this one, Craig, and that's okay. It's okay. Yeah, okay. it's not. I'm gonna it's take, not a, take big a deep issue, breath now. <laughs> one of the, David and I discussed this for everybody. Listen, David and I discussed this, and we purposely want to find things that we disagree on. Um, if nothing else, we want to 
we want to show people how you can enjoy being with somebody and talk to them and, and work through. And, and usually I'll learn some from David and possibly he'll learn some from me as well. And that way we can get away from this. Hey, my way is the only way. And I'm offended by your opinion. Uh, we really need to be able to get better at that. Quite frankly, that goes right along with the law of threes. We talked about three months without human assistance. Right now we are creating a culture and a society in this country where we don't know how to communicate to other people. And so at the very least, uh, if you can see me and David joking around about something that we disagree on, then, uh, you know, just you, you figure out how to do with the people that surround you too. I mean, figure out a way to, you know, your opinion is not always right. Um, my, uh, my mainly musings for next week is going to be the five steps of proper leadership and communication skills. So, um, they're the five things that I've been doing for the last 30 years of my life that a lot of people say that I have a certain way and they don't know what my way is, but they like it and how I lead people. Well, I'm just going to go through that, uh, on my next manly musing. So it'll be there for everybody to utilize from this point forward. And again, my way is not the only way, uh, David's way is not the only way, but hopefully what we're doing is sharing opinions and give you some thoughts and, and, uh, you do what works best for you, you, the listener. That is awesome. So let me just ask this question, guys. Do we have time for a quick mailbag segment? All right, fellas, this question is from Matt. And his question is, I see videos on YouTube showing survival booby traps. Are booby traps okay to use? And what can I do to increase security when a survival event happens? Go. Craig, you're kind of on a roll. I'm going to let you take this one first. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> on a roll. Okay, first question is, are booby traps okay to use? Uh, depends upon the booby trap. Uh, meaning, is it a booby trap that's going to cause yeah. injury? Then, you know, you have to weigh the situation and consider your humanity. You know, if it's if you're in the middle of a war, and that's the only way you can defend yourself, because if you don't do that, those people are going to kill you. That's one thing. Uh, it's an entirely different matter if you're setting a booby trap up because somebody's trespassing on your land and, and poaching deer. That's a, you know, if I set up a booby trap there uh, and I hurt somebody, then, you know, I don't think that's a good use for it. It's, it's a totally different animal. What can I do to increase security in a survival event happens? Well, you've got to have eyes on the situation. Uh, we teach a tactical survival class that uh, that David attended, what, three years ago. And one of the things that we do in that class is we have 24 hours of security the whole time we're there. And I can just tell you right now, guys, uh, for those that have never been in the military and never been in law enforcement, where you have to uh, provide the security for those that, are, that you're with 24-7, that is very, very taxing on the psyche. Mm -hmm. uh, it really change your life. <laughs> mentally wears you down. Uh, it's just another reason I, I do that class. And every time I leave that class, I, I, I feel compelled to thank veterans for everything that they've done. I mean, it's just, it's just particularly, you know, particularly these guys that were learning some of these tactics in Vietnam, for example, and, and had people surround them trying to kill them all the time. I mean, just in a place where you can't see anybody, it's just, you need to thank your veterans because they, you know, the World War II veterans that are, you know, we're almost lost them all in Vietnam and even our modern day warriors out of the desert. I mean, these guys, it's just incredible work that they do just trying to keep their safety. So that's, that's my recommendation. Eyes on all the time. Got to have somebody up. Got to have security. What about you, homie? Yeah, man. <laughs> Let me throw in two more things. And this is really, really simple. Get a dog. All right. <laughs> Get a dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we have the, we have one of the smallest dogs I've ever seen. His name's Calvin, but he's really cool. Maybe I'll show him in a video someday. He is awesome. He's a hiking mountain dog, right? But he's six pounds, maybe seven pounds. And, uh, but, but that dog can hear and smell. And I will tell you mm -hmm. what, you know where we live, right? We have kind of a private situation here, but he is. He is a good 30 seconds to two minutes ahead of me all the time as far as what's going on around us. So get a dog. Another thing, I think we talked about this in, uh, maybe it was with Creek Stewart, but something that's really effective is just a surveillance sign. Uh, you don't even have to have surveillance cameras, but, but that alone and locking your doors. And I totally agree with Craig. If you have the opportunity, you've, you should, if you're in a situation and this get, this gets back to the rule of threes, the three months thing, 
having people that you know that you can trust because if a survival event happens, people are going to have to band together, like-minded people, have that awareness and have guards. So I think that's pretty simple. You got anything else to add to that? Yeah. No, man. And and again, just in case somebody's hearing us for the first time, we talked in that podcast that David's talking about, it, even if you don't have a dog and even if you don't have a security system, put the signs up. Put the signs so up. So people right. think that you have a dog. Um, they think you have a security system. In that manner, you thwart a lot of opportunistic thievery from happening and opportunistic aggressors because let's say you're living in a neighborhood and, and uh, there's 10 houses there and your house has a beware of dog and a beware of the surveillance camera signs and the other houses don't, well, they're going to go to another house more often than not. So that's a way to thwart that fairly well. How about that word thwart? I just pulled out of there. Kentucky style. Hey, I think we're done, man. Yeah. So coming up next time, I think this is a really good segment into what we have coming up. I think it's going to be next time. We have so many great shows coming up, man. I'm losing track. We're going to be talking about uh, active shooter situations. We're going to have a discussion on that. We're going to specifically talk about avoidance and pre-event observation and prevention. Unfortunately, this is something that we really, really need to talk about in this day and age. So I want to encourage you guys to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on this or any other of our upcoming podcasts. Craig? Don't forget, guys, as always, click the description to grab your copy of the show notes from today. There's a bunch of cool links there for resources as well as just books and videos as well. Uh, it, those show notes are going to include the tips, tactics, and skills, and including action steps, kit checklist, and, and links to gear that we discussed today on today's show. So with that said, I think we're done, guys and gals. So we really appreciate you listening. I'll double up on what David said. Please go subscribe to our show wherever you like to listen to it and uh, give us a, uh, a positive review if you feel good about the show uh, send us a message on Patreon that's uh, patreon.com forward slash the survival show so we can get your questions on the show and until next time this has been the survival show podcast where we keep it simple we stay positive we stay sharp positive.